Hello, I'm Yanni Zacharakis. And I'm Tim Whitney. Welcome to Dive into Imaging Science, the podcast of the European Society for Molecular Imaging. Pour yourself a nice glass of wine and join us as we delve into the recent literature and perhaps learn a little from the minds that have shaped the field. The premise is really simple. Each time we invite one senior academic to discuss their favourite publication from the recent literature. We'll find out what caught their eye and why it is worth taking a closer look at this particular publication. Along the way, we will learn their publication strategies and possibly even glimpse into the future of this amazing field of research. Hello everybody and welcome to the latest edition of Dive Into Imaging Science, the podcast for the European Society for Molecular Imaging. And I guess you'll notice we have a, a new name. I hope you will like it. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is, uh, is Tim Whitney and we have Yanis joining us today as well. And we're privileged to, uh, to have a, a guest who's going to discuss uh, some latest and greatest um, imaging research that has recently been published. Um, and so I'd uh, love maybe the, the guests to introduce themselves. Um, so welcome, uh, Yolanda de Vries. Uh, please, please tell us a little bit about yourself and, and why you chose the paper and, and what paper it was. Yeah, hello, Tim and uh, Janice. Here we are. Um, I'm a tumor immunologist, so always a bit scary to talk about an imaging paper so that was that's my first confession here but i choose a paper in vivo imaging of nanoparticle labeled car t cells and the last author of this patient paper is uh, heike daldrup link and she it's from stanford university it's published in this year's PNAS, so 2022 um I'm a, like I told you, I'm a tumor immunologist, so I'm really interested in cancer immunotherapy. Um, so that's why I choose this paper. Uh, I'm also doing uh, many clinical trials with cellular immunotherapy. So that's another t- reason that I choose CAR T cells for this, uh, uh, yeah, why I choose this article to read. And I'm really interested in the mechanisms of cellular therapy. And what I learned when I started doing um, cellular therapies, I do myself dendritic cells research. So I inject dendritic cells and I hope these cells come out. Uh, what I learned is that it's a black box. Once you inject cells into a patient, you don't know mm-hmm. anything. And that was in 1997. So one of my first patients, we took biopsies and we found that all the cells were still at the injection depot. So that was very, very sad. So, that's why I am always interested in labeled cells and where they home and where they are going to. Um, and of course, CAR T cells, it's very, very effective in blood cancer. So it's really nice for the patients. Uh, but for solid tumors, it's not working yet. So that would also help us if we can show them where they go and what they are doing uh, to improve CAR T cells for solid tumors. Um, another point why I choose this article is also that, that I really like to do it in p- patients, so not only mouse models. Absolutely. I hope this answers your questions a bit. 
Yeah, maybe we can just explore your your background a little bit. So it's lovely to hear how you got into imaging and the, the questions that were posed that you couldn't really answer using any other method. And we'll get into the, the paper in, in some detail in a moment, but really fascinated about what your solution was to that big, big problem of where, where did these cellular therapies actually go in the body? Yeah, we started with labeling of dendritic cells with uh, indium. So indium and used uh, syntography to follow them. The next step was that we used um, iron oxide particles for dendritic cells, and then we followed them with iron oxide. And what we learned there that was that we could really visualize them in lymph nodes of patients. So that was really helpful to see where they are going. But we also learned that um, injecting into a lymph node is not only difficult in mice, where they are very, very small lymph nodes, but it was also very difficult in humans because we missed in almost 50% of the cases. So um, we learned that injection is crucial. And and that's why I think it's with the CAR T cells used in this, this paper, for example, uh, they used it intravenously, so that's much easier. So yes. I think that helps already uh, to, to get some more insight into where cells go in humans. So there are lots of different methods, and, and this is one, this paper explores really elegantly uh, one method of direct labelling of these therapeutic cells to look at their in vivo distribution. But of course, there are a whole host of others that now have been used both preclinically and and more recently clinically. I guess before we even really get into the details, I've got a a big question mark here. It's like, why is this not uh, uh, imaging methods not being used more routinely in these clinical trials? We're spending many uh, thousands of euros on just a single patient uh, for these extremely exciting treatments. But actually, you don't always get efficacy in, in, in the individual. And you know, that could be due to off-targeting effects or it could be due to a myriad of different reasons. And most of the, t- the time, as you mentioned, you know, even back in the 90s, that was a black box. And in some ways, it's still a black box. So do you yeah. have a thought about why this really hasn't taken off? Yeah, it, it's, it's, I think, costs. But of course, that's not a scientific reason. But the scientific reason, I think, is that we also are afraid that that the functionality of immune cells that still suit exertive function in humans is diminished by imaging methods. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have problems like viability of cells or um, are they different? Um, I often got questions if we use iron to label the cells, they get a bit heavy. Do they migrate as well as they do with iron? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you could also argue, yeah, but maybe you can label half of the cells and at least see where they go and the other half not. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons. And there are not that many approved agents to use for um, visualization in vivo. And of course, it's expensive. And also the logistics, it's very, very difficult. Mm. Uh, I remember my PhD student, or back then he was a PhD student, Erik Arnsen, doing this, and he made made 156 emails to do one patient because everybody had to do something in this this logistics. So so 
get the iron oxide, get this, get that, get that, and, and have the scanners reserved and have the, 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 the people who operate, etc. All kinds of things. So it's very complicated. So it's not routinely used. Uh, but I think it, it should be, at least in the development phase of cellular therapy, used, being used more often. On the other hand, um, I learned something new from this paper. If you label T-cells with iron, they proliferate better. So it's, it's dangerous to use it then if you don't use it afterwards because then they proliferate less. So maybe the efficacy is less because you don't use the iron. So there are all kinds of drawbacks. And especially if you are a large, big pharmaceutical company, you don't want to take risks. So not the risk that the imaging agent is causing some problems, not the risk that the imaging agent is doing better, uh, making your, your cells work better because afterwards you, you might not see the same effect. And all, yeah, it's, it's quite expensive. It's quite logistically challenging and you don't know the product if it's still similar to what you intend to use in the, in the, in the long run. Maybe we should focus in then mm -hmm. on the actual paper itself and the technique paper. that they use, um, because um, all, all of those um, those different features that you've just described, and especially viability, that you know, of course they test, and this is now the benchmark. We always have to test the viability of our therapeutic cells to see if that is maintained, and by and large, the ones that get published are the ones that that do maintain that that kind of viability. I, I don't know. Maybe we take a step back though. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the actual um, way in which these uh, the, these T cells were um, these CAR T cells, I should say, were, were labelled, and and why this is maybe uh, a bit of a breakthrough versus other methods for um, for imaging cells by MRI. Yeah. Now, first of all, they were labelled with ferumoxitol. I didn't know it, but maybe I should have known it. And this is FDA approved for even pediatric uh, children lacking iron. So that's really, really nice. And they use a microfluidics device. So they use multiple, yeah, two, actually two devices at the same time to get, get it in. And that, of course, uh, makes it quite nice. The cells are not touched in a way so harshly. If you, for example, do electroporation, then you, you might even damage the cells. And with this technique, they say they don't damage the cells. They are doing quite okay uh, afterwards, and, and you can really look at them. So they test Yolanda, if I, could if I could jump in. Yeah. I didn't really understand, having read the paper, and I read it a few times, I didn't really understand how that microfluidic device actually got the eye in inside the cells. It wasn't, in my mind, described as well as it could have been, nor was no. there any illustrations that showed that. Um, and yeah, I, I just was still a little confused with how they actually got that iron in. Do you have any insight that you could sort of shed on that? I didn't look into details, Tim, into this, but I know a <laughs> bit of microfluidics because I did some other stuff, getting cells together from different things. But they even have five flows. And I think the flow is very, very high. So they actually target in a very high speed. If you have the speed of the iron particles faster than the speed of the cells, it's that they target them in. 
So I think okay. it has to do with the speed of the flow uh, in which the iron um, is delivered to the cells. And that two fluids come together. And then if you have a very high speed of one, they will go through the membrane into the into the cells. But I also didn't look we, into detail about the methods. Without, without damaging the cells. Yes, because it's it's not the, um, the complete cell is not under stress, but the, the speed of the particle makes it go into the okay. into the cell, and they are, in my opinion, quite small, so they will not completely damage the membrane, and the membrane often is quite flexible. Huh? The cell membrane, they can also eat or digest complete phagocytes so i think they're quite okay t-cells of course are not less phagocytotic but i think by the speed and the that it might go in but we could have a better look into that one yeah if true. absolutely i mean email in because i'd love to know yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, is there any kind of points that you kind of were interested in about this uh, this paper well, I was interested in, in the fact that they're using different types of uh, uh, imaging uh, methods. Uh, so I'm, I'm an imaging person, so you know I, I, I try to understand the biology, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the, the whole uh, um, uh, you know field of CAR T cells and uh, the way that uh, uh, people are trying to, to solve the problem that uh, Yolanda described to get them into the solid tumors. Uh, so they're, they're using MRI, they're using uh, magnetic uh, particle imaging, and they're using photoacoustics. Um, so do you do you see? Uh, uh, I mean, these three methods also going in. You know, this is a preclinical uh, 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 paper. Do you do you see these three methods going into into the clinics uh, or? One having a um, you know higher impact uh, on 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 uh, on this field, uh, or maybe in specific applications, one being better than the other. Yeah, the MRI is of course MR imaging is yeah. of course commonly used, available yeah, at course. multiple players. But then we have the detection limit. What I found in this paper mm -hmm. was that the detection limit is ten twenty thousand CAR T cells in the pellet eh? so mm -hmm. and with magnetic particle imaging it's it's 2000 car t cells that they can image so that's a tenfold mm -hmm. difference mm -hmm. i'm not sure yeah. how many they could i could not find it with the photoacoustic approach um i think the mr imaging is the easiest to perform in the clinic because of mm -hmm. the knowledge already available clinically uh, but i also learned that the magnetic particle imaging is also clinically available. So that would be an option, but it, it's of course more specialized centers would then uh, be able to participate. And photoacoustics, um, you, you don't need ionizing uh, radiation, but, but I, I'm not sure how many centers can do it. And also I think you need quite specialized personnel to perform this, but maybe you bet, know better than me. Maybe I could just jump in here and mm -hmm. I, I maybe ask a bit more of a controversial question related to this. It's a slight sideline from the whole imaging therapeutic T-cells, which clearly this paper does a great job of doing. But just because we can image 
men using diff- many different techniques. Should we be doing that? Like, is there really a need to be able to use three different modalities? And if so, what is the purpose behind combining those three into one paper? Is this to try and say, look, we, we did it because we can, yeah. or is it we're doing it because there's a real clinical need to do it? Yeah. And I guess, I mean, the work is fab- fabulous, but this is always my question with multimodality imaging, is really, what is the benefit? Is it perceived or is it real? Yeah, but maybe it's also if the image is real or not and then if you can have it with two methods confirming each other that would be helpful especially in the human setting uh, especially also with uh, mr of iron oxide particles it's really nice if you can confirm it with a different different model, um, imaging approach but i agree with you that that it might not be um yeah necessary to use multiple as soon as you know what is working and what's optimal and what's the, the best sensitivity then you can do with one imaging approach mm-hmm. but i think in this case yeah. it's because you can and then then i i what i found striking of the patient of this paper is that there is no accumulation of the car t cells in the lung after intravenous injection that was was mm-hmm. a bit puzzling me and then I thought maybe it's too late after 24 hours that they're already gone because if you use indium oxide labeled cells, you often see them quite quickly in the lung after two hours. But I thought they were also there after 24 hours. Or is it the imaging modality that's not suitable or not optimal for lung? Because MRI is, to my opinion, not, or to my knowledge, not optimal for lung imaging, correct? Yeah. I look at the both Absolutely. of you. Yeah. yeah. So then maybe double or multiple imaging approaches uh, um, is better. So, and for example, I can also imagine that some parts of the body there's more iron present and it's more difficult to image iron label cells. And maybe one of the other techniques is then better to to have it visualized there. But I think as soon as you you know which imaging modality is working you will choose one of them because it's too expensive mm-hmm. to use more. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, uh, there I, is I of guess course we, also clinically something about... already available. Or Sorry, tested. Amanda, carry on, please. Yeah, now you have, of course, in the clinic, the copper 64 superparamagnetic iron oxide nitroparticles are already used once. So I think that's also that there's a need to have more imaging modalities if you want to bring something novel and especially if you want to publish it in things like the PNAS. Um, Maybe if we kind of focus still a bit about the imaging modalities and and the majority of the data here is acquired with uh, MRI um, and T2 weighted images that are acquired. Do you think, and I'm saying this as somebody who specializes in PET, but do you think ultimately there is going to be the sensitivity to be able to use MRI-based techniques to track very low density of therapeutic cells when they're diluted in the human bloodstream? No. Okay. I don't think you can do that. 
Um, Even with this new technique that has really loaded a a large amount of iron in. Yeah, but the erythrocytes, etc. should also contain something. So I think it's very, very difficult to use this technique. But also for CAR T cells and other immune cells, um, the target tissue or environment in the body is not the bloodstream. It's either the lymph nodes or the tumor. These cells actually go nicely to the tumor, go to the spleen um, as off-target and to another organ. What was it? We had the spleen, the liver. The liver. Yeah. And that was only the first day. They were not even in the tumor. But but after three days, that was optimal in the tumor. So I think, uh, yeah, we, we don't have to image or to visualize the cells in the bloodstream because we don't want them there in the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you you CAR T cells are of course very very useful for blood um, derived tumors. So there you you want to see them in the blood, but we know they are working in that that um, in these diseases. And so that's yeah different. And and I was wondering that's why I also read the paper uh, if they are already have a, a solution to the problem that T cells are dividing cells because. I would love to see if the cells are dividing and then I come to your pet because maybe there the the combination of this therapy of this uh, labeling technology with pet imaging showing dividing T cells at the same spot that would be helpful because of course we have a problem CAR T cells they can image it for one week and afterwards they don't know so then they go back to they have to rely on on um, expression of certain markers that they can find by flow cytometry just in the blood again, so not in the tissue. So I think it it would be nice if we could develop imaging techniques which also um, show us if cells are dividing. Absolutely. Really important um, to to be able to measure those, uh, those parameters and also the activity of these therapeutic cells. Yeah. Have activity markers as well as just markers of their location and I think as a community we're making great strides towards that and we're starting to see some of those um, outcomes in, in clinical studies as well which is super exciting. There was one thing that you mentioned earlier which was of course the mantra that CAR T-cell therapy works really very well um, often for for these sort of blood-based cancers but for solid tumours it doesn't work as well. But here, the authors have uh, selected a very specific type of cancer, a very specific type of CAR T-cell, and actually, they get remarkable responses to treatment, both with and without their labelling technique. Um, I don't know if you want to just, if you have any kind of thoughts about specific cancer type and the CAR T-cell itself. Um, I'm not sure if it matters which cancer type you have, but you need for CAR T cells to have an excellent target antigen. And the CAR T cells they manufactured here are directed or binding to B7H3, which is of mm-hmm. the immune checkpoint family. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit analog to PDL1, so it's one of the breaks of the immune system. Um, 
And it's shown before that it's hardly on healthy cells. And that's, of course, very, very important because if you have it also on healthy cells, you get a lot of off-target effects. And they combined this B7H3 with 41BB co-stimulation. So they made two molecules in this CAR T cells. And 41BB promotes a lower PD-1 expression. So you're targeting not only one antigen, very specifically, but also the whole inhibition pathway, the immune inhibition pathway, PD-1, PD-L1. The whole X is also uh, diminished. So I think it's two mechanisms working here, and that mm -hmm. results in a better anti-tumor activity. But again, this is a preclinical model. It's in a tumor inserted in these models and we know where to target. So I really would love to see this in humans and see if it's then working that well. As, yeah, that well. And then it doesn't matter if we do imaging or not. If it works, it works. But it would be beneficial for optimizing CAR T-cell technology if they use imaging technology. Because if it doesn't work yet optimal, then at least you know what you did. But this is uh, the tumor they chose, osteosarcoma. It's often in children. So I think that's another hurdle if you want to do imaging and it's even in pediatric uh, patients. Uh, it might be even more difficult to, to, to use these, uh, uh, these, these techniques because it's another burden to the patient and children with a tumor and getting CAR T cells and then also having to go to MRI or in the machine. Uh, this might not be feasible or ethical to ask from children. Would you have to have a, a sort of general anaesthetic then for these yes. these children in order to actually acquire the, the, yeah. the data? So that might be more difficult to test these CAR T cells in pediatric tumors. But of course, there are also uh, yeah adults with similar tumors, which could be targeted. And then you could ask it. But still, what, MRI what's... is then still quite a burden for a patient. Not everybody wants to go into the machine. Uh, so you, we can understand. For 45 where, where minutes you... in the machine. Yeah. Where, where would you test it uh, if, it was, if it was your, uh, you know, your work? What type of, uh, of tumors would you, would you start first? Believing that it worked work better or um, easier to image, uh, maybe? Yeah, I think one of of the you you want to choose tumors that is not working with uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. It was a very very devastating uh, disease outcome. So I think mm -hmm. glioblastoma might be an option. Brain tumors, mm -hmm. uh, and I think for brain, lots of imaging techniques are available. So um, there are whole groups of specialists on imaging the brain. So I think there you could benefit from another field doing more on brain imaging, combine it with the cancer fields in the CAR T cell therapy. And I think that would be a great opportunity because we know how to, to visualize the brain. Yeah, but it's always a matter of how do you get enough of those therapeutic cells into the brain and into those gliomas? <laughs> Like with uh, the yeah, study but... that we did over at Stanford with San Gambier, like you had to directly infuse those CAR T cells actually into that tumor itself. So they had like a, you know, a catheter device yeah. you know, through through the skull 
into the tumour cavity after a section. And that came with all kinds of problems related to potential infection and the fact that they have to carry that around. And then, you know, all of the pressure changes when you directly inject into the brain. It's a it's a huge challenge for these yeah. kind of therapies. Yeah, but still it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, if you really have a very, very, uh, yeah, your life expectancy is very low, short, um, then it's still an option. Absolutely. Yeah. Then you, you suddenly consider it an option. Hmm. I wanted to get back to something that you mentioned a bit before. You said, of course, this is a preclinical model uh, using sort of uh, subcutaneously implanted tumour cells. Maybe this is a more general question, getting a bit away from the paper itself uh, and certainly casting no aspersions on this paper. But as a community, do we do a good enough job of creating accurate preclinical cancer models? Uh, I think we're getting there also with the spontaneous tumor models. I think that's more closely related to the humans. Uh, But as an immunologist, I have to disappoint you. We are never going to get real good models because the immune system of the mice is so different than of the humans, especially my favorite cell, the dendritic cells, very different in mice. Even the numbers of dendritic cells from specific subsets of subsets, as immunologists, I like subsets, uh, are (laughs) so different between mice and men um, that I really wonder if it's going to be successfully translated. So I think for mechanisms, to find uh, mechanisms, how it's working, it's okay. But finally, you have to translate it to the human system, do the in vitro work, and then also try to really translate it to to the clinic. Because otherwise, we we can cure the mice, but we will not be able to cure humans if we always stick to mice. I have this big plan. And it's never going to happen. But I've got probably at least 30 years left in my career. So why not have a dream? And I'll start the dream now. Um, I would love for all of our preclinical imaging uh, centres to be associated with a veterinary practice. Because, you know, there's so many of these, um, these animals, these pets that we have in our homes that have spontaneous tumours that arise. Mm. The sarcomas in certain types of dogs is a great example. Like, wouldn't it be amazing if we can try and help these pets by trying to give them a better diagnosis or an earlier diagnosis or tell them if the treatment's working or not. But at the same time, we could learn so much more because these are spontaneously arising. They have a natural immune system. You know, we're not creating artificially these, these models there's also some ethical considerations. We're not, you know, yeah. causing now, suffering. But you in, run into in other problems, models. Tim. You yeah. will run, yeah, because the problem is there is no, there are no antibodies or stuff available to stain for certain markers in dogs yeah. and uh, in cats, etc. So you run into, mul- and you don't have the cytokines no, working on the cells of dogs and cats. I started my career in the dermatology department and we also, there was this 
fellow PhD student investigating dogs and pets. And she always, dogs, yeah, it was a disaster. She had no reagents. So even if you know what the diagnosis is and you know what to do, it's difficult. So you, you need cross-reactive reagents to have your dream yes. come true. So maybe you can start with that one. Okay. Identify cross-reactive reagents. Sort of Thermo Fisher, but for for canine friends. <laughs> but you're right. Like all of these considerations, of course, we, we we really have to think about. But I certainly think we need to get to a system, actually, not where we're we're really reducing the animal work, but we're being a bit cleverer about how we we use them and getting closer to that human system. Um, but this is maybe way away from the paper itself. Um, Yanis, do you have, I don't know, do you have any more thoughts about getting back to the paper? Uh, back to the paper. Uh, not specific on, 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 on the paper, but uh, um, maybe, um, uh, you know, asking Yolanda what uh, would she do next if uh, it was uh, her project? I mean, what... Uh, uh, would you, uh, you know, add or what would you do uh, on top of what uh, the authors presented? Yeah, now they they claim it's translatable methods. So mm. if I were them, I would do the translation because that's very, very important. Like Tim wanting to have animals, pets just from the house treated. I would really love to have this into the clinics and use it um, in the humans. Um, I'm not sure if this is going to happen because CAR T-cells, of course, is a big market and it's done by pharmaceutical companies. And then they have to agree with this method being used in patients uh, with their CAR T-cells. So it might be, uh, might be a difficulty to get it into the clinic, not only methodology-wise, not only logistic-wise, but also with the companies willing to, to learn more about where the CAR T-cells go. Of course, companies want them to be effective and then they can sell it. That's, of course, the best part of the CAR T-cells. If they are working, then they, they will introduce it and it's available uh, for everybody, for all patients in the world, although expensive. Um, but but the organ yeah the organization of it is of course uh, more difficult to get it in. It's not um, an academic driven field the CAR T cells anymore. So that makes it that research is not often um, in line with what you want to know as an academic researcher. What you would love to learn uh, and what is economically or investment wise the best to do. Yolanda, with those hurdles that you've just described and you've described earlier on in, in the podcast, can you tell us and the audience a bit like how you are trying to circumvent some of those big barriers? Uh, yeah, what we do is try to publish immediately so that, that it's out. Uh -huh. uh, and not not patent everything you you find because then it's uh, prote protected uh, and you have to sell it and uh, this whole stuff yeah what you should yeah what what 
suddenly becomes of interest for commercial partners. Um, so, but, but of course, if you want to have it broadly introduced into the clinic, you need pharmaceutical companies to get it in. Um, other hurdles, yeah, we have a very nice environment. So we have an academic medical center with all yeah, imaging modalities present. We have skills, so I think that's why how we overcome. So transferring to another lab is or to another institute is not so highly likely that we will do that, to do it that way. But I agree, it's not always easy to have the imaging methodology implemented into clinical trials. Mm-hmm. Kind of leading on from that and, and sort of maybe uh, sort of wrapping things up a little bit, I, I'm kind of really interested uh, why you are publishing rather than patenting, because I've always been told that the mantra is you should patent this because only by protecting this will the companies be interested in your methodology. And if they have the intellectual property, then they can make money from it. And so that's the only way in which you can kind of get your technology out to as many people as possible rather than just keeping it in individual centers. Yeah, but that's not completely true. Because if you look at bone marrow transplantation, which is very, very successful in hematological cancers, that's not patented. Um, So it is implemented, uh, but it's not patented. So you make it more widely available by not patenting. So maybe that's the clue. As long as it's a patient-derived cellular product, maybe you should not patent. Okay. Well, this is something definitely for us all to think about. And, and really, last thing from me, do you think it matters where we publish? Oh, nowadays it's it's a different world. <laughs> I used to 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 have the 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 papers, the the, the yeah the the actual in the in the closets. But now we we got rid of it because you can find everything online, and as long as you have the, the right keywords, the right title etc you will get interest for your your article and i even learned that you should do a lot on twitter to get your article or linkedin to get your article to the people who are interested so i'm not sure Absolutely. if it matters where you publish where you publish so you're not right. looking at uh, only at uh, the high visibility let's say papers but you also look at you know these small journals that might have some uh, quite interesting uh, things. Yeah, but but it it makes looking for good papers more difficult because it can be everywhere. Yeah. It it's just that if you read it, you 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 will be more critical yourself because mm-hmm. then you often can see if it's a very very small journal or if it's high impact journal. I think that the reviewers have done a better job if you have a, a higher level or more. Um, you are not allowed to say high impact anymore, huh? but uh, no, it's banned. <laughs> commonly read uh, read uh, uh, yeah journal. I think there you can see the difference. So you are more mm. critical, but you can learn okay. a lot. Yeah. Okay, uh, so coming to to an end, uh, it's it's been a real pleasure to to have you here, uh, Yolanda, Thank you with so us. Thank you so much. 
yeah, it was really, really exciting and, uh, uh, you know, really a pleasure to, to, to discuss with you. Uh, that uh, brings to an end uh, this edition of uh, the ESMI podcast. Uh, so join us uh, on the, the, the next one. Uh, do we do we have a, a, a name for for the next one yet? We've been badgering a couple of names. Uh, <laughs> they are yet to fully commit, so maybe this is the okay. the kind of poke that we need for them to answer some of those emails. But we have we will have an amazing lineup over the course of the next few months with some fantastic speakers. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm sure really trying to reach the heights of you, Yolanda. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Thank you very much for this kind invitation and a nice talk we had. <laughs> Thanks for diving with us into imaging science. My glass is now empty so it's time to say goodbye.